Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Easter, Its Purpose and Promise. Let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Victory of the Cross. I recently interviewed Daryl Johnson regarding the message of Easter. You know, Daryl is an internationally renowned speaker as well as an author, he's a pastor, he's a theologian, and he's a man I call a friend. As we talked about Easter, he made mention of the fact that when he was a boy, he had thought of Good Friday as the day of defeat, and then out of the ashes of defeat came the great day of victory, which of course is the resurrection. But now as he has matured, he has realized that the cross is a place of victory. Well, as he spoke about the victory of the cross, my heart resonated with what he said. You know, I too, growing up in a church, thought the same thing. And I too, as I have thought about the cross, have come to the same conclusion as he has. You know, for one, the cross is not a bad turn of events. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus is recorded as saying, No one takes it from me, that is my life, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. That is... When I die on a cross, says Jesus, I'm doing it out of my will and my authority, not out of a bad turn of events. And if you do a detailed study of the Passion Week of our Lord, it it becomes readily apparent that even though the Jewish religious leaders were looking to kill him, they were determined not to do it during the Passover. You see, they were afraid that if they tried that, they might spark a riot. So they were looking for a more opportune time a time when the people had gone home, a time when no one was looking. But Jesus would have none of that. He rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, deliberately looking to recreate the ancient prophecy of Zechariah and sending a shockwave through Jerusalem. You know, since the Roman occupying force already thought of Passover as a time which took the Jews to the very edge of war, and with this action of Jesus looking like the Jewish Messiah would have put the Romans on high alert. Well, in response, the Jewish religious leaders would have gone on high alert as well because they were trying to convince the Romans that there was no need for military force, but now it seemed out of control. And that's why when all the events are winding out of control in John 11, verse 50, Caiaphas, the high priest, says, It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. And and he meant, you know, if we let this guy carry on, he's going to take us all down with him. Well, Jesus knew full well that what he was doing would create such an untenable response. He was pushing the Jewish leaders into a corner where from their perspective, they would have no choice but to put him to death immediately during Passover, raising the possibility of a riot and Roman reprisals. But they had so little choice. Jesus wanted exactly that. He had come to Jerusalem to die, and everything he did was painting the religious leaders into a corner, drawing out of them a murderous response. He had come to Jerusalem to die at Passover so that from that moment on, he would be the Passover lamb whose blood was applied to all the lives of those who trusted in him so that the angel of death would pass over. And during Passion Week, we find Jesus deliberate, forceful, unrelenting. He had a goal that he would not take his foot off the gas until the goal was accomplished. He was laying down his life at his own will 
Passion Week is never the story of something that went wrong. There's another matter that makes us think about the death of Jesus as a great victory. As Paul years later would reflect on this matter, and as he wrote to the Colossian church, he said something that put the death of Jesus into perspective. And here I'm reading Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, when reading a text like this, one key to understanding is that we early on get all of our pronouns right. I mean, who is he? Who is them? What's in him? And we find that especially in verse 15. So let me read the text again. When I do, listen carefully as I fill in in each case who he and him and them refer to. Are you ready? Here we go. And you, you Gentile Colossian Christians, who are dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God, that is God the Father, made alive together with him, him being, together with Jesus Christ the Son, having forgiven us, that is, having forgiven all believers our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, that is, believers, with its legal demands. This he, that is, God the Father, set aside, nailing it to the cross. He, the Father, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and I'll get to those in just a moment, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, that is, the rulers and authorities, in him, that is, in Christ Jesus the Son. Now, did you get all that? Now, if you're still struggling just a bit, hang on. You will see why this passage tells us why Good Friday is the day of greatest triumph in human history. Now, the greatest triumph was not when the Romans defeated Carthage or when Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo or when the Allies triumphed over the Nazis. This, this Jesus dying on the cross is a victory that so smashed the rulers and authorities that they were both disarmed and subjected to everlasting shame. And this one act, Jesus deliberately going to the cross, and that's quite a mouthful. It tells me that once we understand how, we will forever as believers long for the celebration of Good Friday. We'll be like little children saying, Father, you know, tell us one more time about the greatest victory, the greatest defeat in the history of the earth. It's an amazing and astonishing victory. Now, let's start where Paul does. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, you refers to the Colossian Christians. Most Bible teachers are in agreement that the Colossian church was made up primarily of Gentiles. And Paul says at one time, that is, before your conversion, you were dead. That language sounds very similar to what Paul said to the Ephesian Christians. Paul told them that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, and in Colossians he merely says, dead in trespasses. A sin is to miss the mark. The Bible tells us that all of us will be judged by God's perfect law, but rather than keeping that law, we miss the mark. But a trespass, well, that's a deliberate act. Think about it like trespassing on private property. You see a sign that says, don't enter private property, but you ignore it, and you go to a place where you are forbidden from going. And when Paul says you are dead in trespasses, he doesn't mean that the owner of the property shot you dead. 
And that would be adding a thought that Paul doesn't have in mind. When he says dead in trespasses, he means that death is an irreversible condition. You don't move from being identified as a condemned trespasser to now being thought of as a lawful man or a woman. No, no. God has found you guilty. You're a lawbreaker. Both your guilt and the propensity you have to keep on breaking the law. I mean, both of these conditions are irreversible. It's who you are. Your condition was sealed in concrete. You're not able to move from that. But then, having made that point, Paul adds that you were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, please understand that Paul is not telling these Gentiles that their failure is that they weren't circumcised. I mean, the reason we know he doesn't mean that is because twice in Paul's writings, that is both in 1 Corinthians 7 and then in Galatians 5, Paul says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. He means no one should put their confidence in whether they were religiously circumcised. But circumcision was a sign for the Jews that they had been marked by the covenant of God. So when Paul says these Colossians were uncircumcised, he means that God had not put a mark of ownership on them. Indeed, the exact opposite was the case. God had marked them as lawbreakers. They had no merciful promises. They were dead, dead to God, dead to his ways, dead to his mercy, dead to the covenants. Death is irreversible. And so I need to stop here and recognize that this kind of language, well, it isn't unique to Paul. In 1 John 5, 19, John writes, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. They are, as it is, captives of the devil. And referring back to Paul's words in Ephesians, he says, you were at one time following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So imagine, if you will, how things used to be in the city of Berlin when the communists controlled it. The communists built a wall around the city and no one was let out. Were in fact two walls. And in between those two walls was an open area in which the army put sharpshooters and laser-guided weapons and they shot anyone who tried to get beyond the wall. Even so, the devil keeps his captives in. He's locked them in until the cross of Jesus came. In the past month, we've been blessed with the opportunity to place the daily Bible teaching program of Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again on radio stations across Northern Canada. What a wonderful opportunity to touch so many northern communities with trustworthy Bible teaching and messages of encouragement and hope. This month, we're inviting you to join us in launching this exciting venture and sustaining the airing of these programs moving forward. So for that purpose, perhaps you'd consider sending a one-time gift or consider becoming a monthly partner as an indication of your commitment to sustain Bible teaching programming across Canada. To offer your gift of support, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. And remember to ask for this month's free ministry gift, Dr. John's new series on the Gospel of John, Why Follow Jesus. I said that death is irreversible, and it is, unless, of course, God gives life from the dead. That's what conversion is. Each conversion is a resurrection from the dead. Conversion is a mystery, but it is a mystery that Paul invites us to explore thoroughly. Now then, having stated that we were dead, Paul says, but God the Father made you alive along with Jesus. 
He means to say when Jesus was raised from the dead, you sprang to life along with him. Your life and his life are bound together, and that is conversion. But Paul wants to get to the cross. Yeah, the resurrection is valuable when explaining salvation, but here in Colossians, Paul focuses on the victory of the cross. So says Paul, God the Father made you alive with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, how was he able to do this, to take guilty, hell-bound sinners and then forgive them? Well, says Paul, he did it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, that is, all believers, with its legal demands. Now, that phrase, record of debt, surely a reference to the fact that the Father has taken note of every violation of the law. Not one is forgotten, not one is ignored. Not one is said, it doesn't matter. Indeed, every sin is duly recorded, and there is in God's presence a record of all transgression. That's a disturbing thought, but it's true. The legal demands, those are the just retributions that the law demands. Each transgression comes with a punishment attached to it. That's why the final judgment is not a general statement that we're just sinners. It's a detailed review of every single sin with a cumulative effect of the consequences of each act of sin. That's why I've said before, if you're not going to repent and turn to Christ, it's, you know, it's better to die at 21 than at 96. I mean, you think of the record of debt that each year accumulates. But of course, I hasten to add, living to 96 can be a blessing if you take note of the Father's offer receive his free gift of forgiveness and reconciliation. I mean, what a blessing those extra years are, for those years reflect God's patience and his grace. But how did God the Father forgive the record of debt? Look again at the latter part of verse 14. This, that is the record of debt, he, God the Father, set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, for every believer in Christ, is this not a precious statement? The Father took your record of transgression with each punishment attached to it. And when Christ was nailed to the cross, that record was nailed there alongside of our Savior. Tell me, dear believer, where is your sin? It's nailed to Christ's cross. That's why Horatio Spafford wrote those amazing words in that hymn, It is well with my soul. See, he was thinking about this verse when he wrote, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. That's glorious. But now to the victory song. Verse 15 says, He, the Father, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him that is in Christ Jesus the Son by his cross. See, I want to change the images for just a moment. You know, before I gave you the image of the communist era and living in Berlin with a wall around the city preventing you from ever leaving, let me change that a bit and give you the image of a jail cell. I want you to imagine you've gone to jail. You've been in court. You've been found guilty. The record is kept of your crimes, which are most serious. The sentence, life in prison, no chance of parole. Now, imagine that you have a jailer. If there ever was a cruel captor, it's him. He's abusive. For no reason at all, he puts you in solitary confinement at his will. At other times, he arranges that your guards beat you mercilessly. And because you have no access to freedom, you come to fear that jailer. He can have his way with you whenever he wants. Simply hearing his footsteps make your heart quake with fear. 
But one day, a piece of evidence is discovered or a piece of law is revealed, and that evidence is presented in court. The justices consider it, and the outcome is overwhelming. You've been cleared of all charges. Well, now, having been cleared of the charges doesn't make the jailer any less cruel or his designs on your life any less sadistic. But the charges against you have been removed, and now the jailer cannot hold you anymore. His authority over you is broken. Effectively, he has been disarmed. The jailer does not want to release you, but a ruling has been rendered, and his power is gone. And by the way, that's exactly what Charles Wesley wrote in that famous hymn entitled, And Can It Be? He was referring to this very verse when he wrote the fourth verse. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's not just conversion. That's what happened on the cross. Now, before I make application, let me clear up two difficulties. First, there are those who think that this passage means that the death of Jesus was a ransom that Jesus paid to Satan. That is, Jesus' death, so it is thought by some, is what Satan demanded for the release of his prisoners. You might even get that idea when you read the Chronicles of Narnia. But nothing could be further from the truth. God does not owe the devil anything. It's not the devil that requires a payment for our sins. It's rather that the Father requires a payment for our sins. The debt was paid to the Father, not the devil. Let's be clear. The devil gets nothing, not even the death of Jesus. He is stripped of everything. He's humiliated. Second, then, this is for those who are theologically informed. For many years now, a group of misinformed theologians have argued that the theme of Christus Victor, that is the theme of Christ's defeat of Satan on the cross, is an alternative to penal substitutionary atonement. So they'll talk about atonement theory versus Christus Victor theory. So for them, these things are a theory, and you can pick your poison. I mean, which one do you subscribe to? This kind of language is highly misleading. In truth, such an arrangement is the product of human imagination rather than the teaching of Scripture. See, Colossians tells us that in consequence of having paid the debt for our sins, that's penal substitutionary atonement. Well, in consequence, the devil is defeated. That's Christus Victor. These are not two competing theories. Christus Victor is what happens when Christ provided atonement. My debt has been nailed to the cross, and therefore the devil can't hold me in his prison any longer. Now, let me also add that for some, Christus Victor, Christ defeated the powers, means that he defeated political powers, world leaders, and so forth. Look, it's true that at one point in the future, the kings of the earth will be forced to bow to Jesus, but that matter is not now. That matter is reserved for a future time. What has been defeated is Satan's power to hold you in the dungeon of sin and in the dominion of flesh. But, and I can almost hear the objection, if I had been released from Satan's prison, why do I still feel bound by sin and by what Wesley called nature's night, that is, the darkness of my own flesh? Let me extend my illustration of the devil as your jailer. Imagine after you've been released from prison, your jailer lives in your hometown. Every time you see him, the humiliation, the punishment, the abuse, all of that comes back to mind and you just cringe and fear shoots through your heart. 
And seeing this, the jailer often approaches you right in the streets. He throws a rag in your way and demands that you clean his boots. And because you're so accustomed to doing so, you quake in fear and you do exactly as he says. But one day you look hard at your certificate of exoneration. And as your jailer comes to you demanding you clean his boots again, you stand up and with a loud voice, you tell him where to get off. You have no authority over me, you tell him. You think he's a little man full of hatred and all he can do is hate you. And so you begin to mock and ridicule him and he has been humiliated. Listen, when Jesus died, Matthew tells us that all the saints of old came out of their tombs and why not? Nothing can hold them after they have been liberated by Christ's cross. Nature's night can't hold us either. Our past and our present sins can't hold us. Satan can't hold us. Christ has gained for us the victory. And if Christ has set us free in his cross, we are free indeed. My chains have fallen off. My heart is free. In the cross, I can do no more than walk out of the door of my prison cell and follow Jesus. That's the cross. Jesus, our substitution. Jesus, he who bore the anger of the Father, and Jesus, he who defeated Satan. Jesus, whose righteous life and atoning death is counted to our benefit. What a wonderful salvation. I will glory in this wondrous cross of our Lord. Thanks so much, John. This is a special day. It's Good Friday. I'm just wondering if today you would just share with us maybe a special thought and reflection of Good Friday for our listeners today. Now, this is the heart of our faith today and, of course, on Sunday as well. But I want to say that, you know, when I was raised, I remember that we would, on Good Friday, my parents insisted that, you know, we not have any frivolity. There was no joking, laughing. It was to be a serious day. And so I kind of had a difficulty with Good Friday. I'm not saying that it was wrong for my parents to do that. I think it was good. I think we should think deeply about Christ's wounds on our behalf. But I do think we should step back and do what exactly Colossians tells us to do. We should rejoice, for this was the greatest victory that had ever been obtained. Christ, our Savior, defeated the evil one and released us from nature's night, as Wesley said. You know, we have been released. The chains are gone We've risen, we've followed Jesus. Hallelujah for the cross. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Easter, It's Purpose and Promise, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Beginning Monday, April 15th, Dr. Neufeld will present his new two-week Easter series entitled Easter, Its Purpose and Promise. This series focuses on the details of Jesus' weeks leading up to the crucifixion, the crucifixion itself, and the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice and atonement. The second week examines the resurrection, his glorification, and his ultimate victory over sin and death so that all of God's people might receive forgiveness and the promise of eternity. Join us for Easter, its purpose and promise beginning Monday, April 15th through Friday, April 26th. And remember, throughout April, you can still request Dr. Neufeld's recent series on the Gospel of John, Why Follow Jesus, and a bonus copy of the Gospel of John as our free Easter gift to you. 
To request your free ministry gift or to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.